This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So this has been an opportunity for me to reflect on my 38-ish year career as a psychologist, and particularly as a transpersonally oriented psychologist. Um, And so really my career and my personal journey have kind of interwoven in this presentation. Um, And so it's going to be a chance to really reflect on my journey uh, into the transpersonal and to share some aspects of that transpersonal uh, vision. So um, I have four major goals for today's talk in terms of elucidating the role of transpersonal psychology in the world. And one is how transpersonal psychology helped legitimate spirituality as an important area of strengths and conflicts that need to be addressed in healthcare. Second, it pioneered the use of uh, complementary and alternative medicine practices such as meditation and yoga. Third, it highlighted the value of altered states of consciousness in therapy, such as psychedelic drugs, visualization, and psychotic states, being one of my areas of uh, specialization and interest. And then the fourth, which I think will be a fun one to share with you, is um, how transpersonal psychology liberated uh, psychology, and at times I've, I've made the claim Western civilization, how it liberated Western civilization from its reliance on Greco-Judeo-Christian myths. So, to start this journey, I I will need to share some of my own um, uh, journey into the transpersonal. I was, to start this though, I want to share my starting point, which was I was raised in a secular Jewish family. We were never members of a Jewish temple. Religion was never a part of uh, any dinner discussions or activities or anything like that. And certainly for the at that point in my life that I'm going to share this experience, I would have been 23 at this time, um, I would have described myself as an atheist and not really very interested in the whole area of religion and spirituality uh, as a topic because I thought it was just an intellectual dead end. So that was my starting point. Um, And I, at that point in my life, was a graduate student at Harvard in anthropology. And I, I went through what I would call an existential crisis. I started to really begin to question, why was I studying to get a doctorate? My father was a professor. My grandfather was a professor. I started all these questioning about, was this what I really wanted to do, or to what degree was I programmed into this uh, choice? And I had lived a very sheltered suburban life. I had never traveled in the world or even been in Europe. And I just, all of a sudden, it was pretty precipitous, dropped out of school, I had just gotten my master's degree and would have commenced working on my dissertation proposal at that point, but instead I got rid of everything I owned that wouldn't fit into a backpack and started hitchhiking around the country. And um, this was 1971, still culturally what we call the 60s, which 
if you look up what people describe as the 60s, it's stuff starting with 65 with Beatles and Rolling Stones and Grateful Dead and all that kind of, to maybe 72 or 73. So I, I ended up landing in San Francisco in what was still the 60s culturally, and just in walking around Golden Gate Park, somebody offered me a tab of LSD. And at that time, my kind of personal mantra was this line from Cat Stevens called On the Road to Find Out. I hope some of you know that song. Uh, if not, check it out. It's a very powerful song. So I thought, well, this is something I've never done, a psychedelic drug. Um, and I was on the road to find out. So I decided uh, to take it, although I waited till the next day. And uh, had a wonderful day in Golden Gate Park. You know, got up, took it, and just started walking around. Had that kind of experience some of you may know of looking at a tree and seeing it breathing and just wanting to go up and, you know, hug a tree. I mean, and this was not normal for me. Um, And then I walked down to Ocean Beach and just sat there on the beach and watching the waves rolling in, and I was the wave rolling in, and the wave was rolling in me, and just all that kind of stuff that was kind of a new way of thinking for me. So that night, I went to bed um, thinking, well, that was an interesting experience. I might try that again someday, but didn't change my life or anything. Well, a couple of days later, in the middle of the night, I just woke up to go to the bathroom. I was crashing at an apartment somewhere in San Francisco and walked into the bathroom, and all of a sudden, I looked in the mirror, and I just started to hold my hand in this kind of a, now I know, to call it a mudra. Didn't then. Um, And it started to give off white light. And I immediately knew what that meant. That meant that I was a reincarnation of Buddha. And then in another flash of what in psychopathology is called delusional insight, but I realized that I was also a reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And that I had a new mission that, this sounds very naive, but I'll say it how I thought it. Christianity had created a religion for the West. Buddha had created a religion for the East. My new mission was to write a new holy book that would be for the entire world, the first truly global holy book. So I pulled out just a journal that I was keeping and just started for the next five days writing my holy book. Uh, Hardly sleeping, snacking a little bit, but just working on this book. During this time, I had dialogues with people like Bob Dylan. I I wanted to consult with the world's experts on how to get something out into the world in this day and age. And I realized, oh yeah, you know, holy books are kind of the tried and true ancient way to do it, but, you know, maybe there's some more culturally resonant current ways of doing it. So I thought, oh yeah, I should talk to Bob Dylan and Cat Stevens, had these conversations with them. But then I went back to... uh, Socrates and Plato, Freud and Jung, 
R.D. Lang, and any of you recognize the woman in the middle? Margaret Mead. Uh, and I was able, in my mind, to have these uh, dialogues such that I had, at the end of those five days, a about 40-page holy book. And so then the question is, how do you get that out into the world? Well, from my limited stay in the Bay Area, I came to the conclusion that um, Berkeley was the new Jerusalem. So this is an image of a kind of a new age-like building on top with Jerusalem, the old walled part of Jerusalem down there at the bottom. So I went to this place. Some of you may remember when it was Cody's bookstore. It isn't anymore. And I just started, and it looks, by the way, very much like this now, still people selling tie-dye and stuff like that. always like to go back and revisit that. But I just sat there on the side of the street and handed out copies of my book to people. I Even sometimes if a car was stopped at a stop sign or something, I just walked over and handed them a book. And uh, my assumption was that uh, people would read it, really like it, they'd tell all their friends, and then it would just spread around the world uh, due to that natural form of dissemination. So once I had distributed, I did mail off some copies to friends, <laughs> including some friends who are here, um, and um, sent some to family too, um, the parents and so on. Um, and really, one of the things was that because I had this mechanism of dissemination in mind, uh, I didn't feel I needed to go tell people that I was a reincarnation of Buddha and Christ. So I don't think to anybody I appeared to have that kind of a messianic, grandiose fantasy because I put it all in the book. I didn't need to tell people that. People would discover that for themselves pretty soon. So I just needed to um, find a way to, you know, weather this brief period before I would be recognized as some kind of a prophet. So for the next two months, I was a really lucky person now that I've been in the field and see what happens, happens to other people in a similar state of mind. I had really good friends, uh, including those friends I just alluded to who are sitting here, whom I was able to crash with for many of them like a week to two weeks at a time. And I did that for about two months. At the end of two months, I had kind of gone through that journey that I think very few people now really are allowed to do. The journey, that inner journey, that inner hero's journey, as Joseph Campbell calls it. Um, but once my feet landed on the ground, I, I had this rather burning question. You know, how did this Jewish boy who knew nothing about Buddha and Christ think that he was a reincarnation of Buddha and Christ. And so for the first time, I mean, I will describe this as my spiritual awakening. It has other terms, that labels that could be applied to it, but it really did start me on that question of what was this area all about. 
And that is a certain model of psychosis that Jung advocated, a compensatory psychosis, where your psyche overwhelms you with things that you've been ignoring all your life so that you have to focus on it. I could see a little bit of that in this. Okay, so it started me reading people like Joseph Campbell uh, and Jung for the first time. Um, so I realized I had a lot of homework to do. And I still thought that I had made a real kind of breakthrough discovery. But I realized I wasn't a reincarnation of Buddha and Christ. But I really at the, had a little leftover, I guess, grandiosity. I thought, well, I just need a little time and I can shape this up into some kind of a, a book. Like The Making of the Counterculture was a popular book in those days. Some kind of, you know, book like that. So uh, my parents agreed to, uh, I had not stayed with my parents during any of this time. Uh, as I said, I had friends that generously put me up. But they owned a cottage in Cape Cod, um, and it was only used during the summer because it had no insulation or anything like that. This would have been about March. Um, but I, they agreed to let me go live there, and I asked them, and they agreed. Uh, for $50 a month, that would allow me to basically buy food, and then I could start, which I did, uh, really studying what the hell happened here with these readings and so on. And Wolfie had a very good library, and, and I did, in fact, do, start to do a lot of reading, and I actually had that book with me, and I was making notes on it and stuff like that. But I was having a lot of trouble sleeping. There was definitely a part of me that was going, oh my God, how foolish sending this book to all your friends and relatives and uh, really then question started as part of that depressogenic cascade, questioning, well, why did I drop out of Harvard? Was that a, the right thing to do? And I just started to question everything I had done in my life. And as I said, I was having insomnia, and I started to see these horrific like images hovering over me. And one particular image that I saw at night was of a skeleton hovering over me that I took to be my own skeleton, which later I started to explore shamanic imagery, and that's a very common shamanic image that dismantling the skeleton and then dismantling of the skeleton and stuff. Um, but I also had a recurrence of an illness that I had had as a teenager. Like I had surgery for Crohn's disease, this intestinal cramping and bleeding and stuff like that. And I had a recurrence of it there. And I went to a free clinic in Provincetown there. And I was given pain medication, a bottle of pain medication. I don't know if they even had any better drugs then. They do now. Um, but I remember at night, saying with all the trouble sleeping and stuff, starting to think seriously about just taking that whole bottle of pills. I would read something about you know taking it with alcohol to make sure that blah, blah, blah. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it, that. And it wasn't before the internet, so you couldn't research it that way. But I, I had a lot of fantasies like that. My image was not that I would be greeted by an angel, but that I would achieve that state of peace and tranquility that you see in that 
robed figure. That was my image of what taking all those pills would lead me to do. Now, because it was Cape Cod, and it is such a beautiful area, and I'd spent many childhood vacations there and stuff, I did, every day, go out and walk along the beach. It was one of those good health habits that I still, in effect, I think, follow of trying to get out in the middle of the day and get some either I bike or jog or walk, get some sunshine. I had that in me then. As I was walking, all of a sudden, I thought I heard a voice behind me. And I literally turned around thinking there was somebody right behind me. There was nobody behind me. Uh, it was the kind of voice that Joan of Arc heard. Only my voice was telling me to become a healer. That's the only thing I heard it say. But I, the conversations that I mentioned that I had with Buddha and Freud and stuff, they were all experienced as inside my head. This, as I mentioned, I had as coming from outside. Anyway, but this became like a mantra for me. It's like, what does become a healer mean? And all of a sudden, instead of all that depressogenic thinking that I alluded to earlier about you know, recriminations about doing foolish things and mistakes and so on, I started to use this, I mean, not consciously but, or purposefully, but it became like my mantra. What does becoming a healer mean? Now, from my anthropology days, I certainly was familiar with this kind of a figure, you know, uh, and I thought, that doesn't sound like a career option. But then I thought, well, of course, a contemporary healer is an MD. Uh, and I thought, well, there, there certainly are these programs where people go back and in one year, in those days, I think now it takes two years, uh, study chemistry and biology and stuff and apply to a medical school. So I thought, oh, you know, does not mean that? But then I thought, well, actually, you know, of course, healing has many forms. And so this was... One I considered at that point was herbs. What about all the value of traditional use of herbs? I didn't know anything about it, but I was, knew that it was used that way. And then, of course, there were all these other kinds of practices like yoga that I had never done before. Um, so, again, I contacted my parents. It was like this was an, a new point in my integration, although I wouldn't have used that word that I, I, I had something I really wanted to explore here, and I asked, they lived outside of Manhattan, but a bus ride away into the city, and I knew New York would have classes in herbs and yoga and uh, things like that, which, in fact, they did, and I went to. Uh, but I, I went to a place called the Open Center, which I think is still in existence in New York, doing this kind of, having these kinds of programs. And there I got introduced to encounter groups. Um, and to me, that just, there was something about that that really grabbed me. Um, that kind of honest exchange that I just had not grown up with about feelings, whatever. Uh, and you, uh, re whatever your reaction is to that other person and touching and all that kind of stuff was pretty new for me. So I ended up getting some training in doing group encounter, gestalt, psychodrama, uh, and uh, bioenergetics, transactional analysis. And I spent about three years leading 
these kinds of groups. And uh, after doing that for about three years as an unlicensed paraprofessional, I decided that, yes, this is, in fact, what I, the, the kind of work I wanted to do. And for me, this notion of becoming a healer was to become a psychologist. Um, and uh, that meant going back to school. So I, in fact, did go back to graduate school. And that is where, for the first time, I realized that I had experienced something that would have been diagnosed as actually in the DSM of the era then, DSM-2, um, it would have been an acute schizophrenic episode. But I had thought of it as an episode of cosmic consciousness when I did my research. And so I had a positive take on it. I come to graduate school and realize, oh, you know, these people would think I have had a psychotic episode. And I think in those days, uh, if that had been known, I think I would have been asked to leave the program. I think there's a lot more leniency of, uh, you know, the ADA Act alone would mandate that that can't be, a person couldn't be dismissed for having an episode in the past. But I, I, I at that point, just stopped talking about it in any shape or form. Now, um, as part of this awakening process, I mentioned that I started to read Jung and Campbell, but I also started to do things like meditate. Uh, I studied with this uh, healer, Wallace Black Elk. He would go by the term medicine man. Um, and I, it really was my, I would say, it's more of my spiritual awakening than a DSM-2 acute schizophrenic episode, or in the DSM-5 that we're in now, uh, it could have been diagnosed, if I had been seen by a psychiatrist or other mental health professional, as a DSM, as a substance-induced psychotic disorder. I think that would be what it would have been labeled as. Um, but, as I mentioned, really, as a part of my research into this, I also, at that time, still had a somewhat positive view because I did know that, in fact, it had many parallels to the initiatory crises of shamans and experiences of yogis and people like Buddha and Jesus and the desert saints, desert fathers and the saints, you know, St. Teresa. They had all reported experiences that were kind of, you know, I could find parallels to my own experience. And in the Western tradition, we have people like Socrates saying our greatest blessings come to us by way of madness, provided the madness is given to us by a divine gift. And even the Old Testament uses the same term in reference to madness sent by God as a punishment for the disobedient and to describe the behavior of prophets. And this is a poem I'll, I like of Rumi's. The mystic dances in the sun, hearing music others don't. Insanity, the others say. If so... It's a very gentle, nourishing sort. And then just from my anthropology background, since I had that as part of my worldview, I looked that up in that literature. And 
Raymond Prince, after comparing psychotic states across cultures, came up with this statement. Highly similar mental and behavioral states may be designated psychiatric disorders in some cultural settings and religious experiences in others. At least a proportion of them may be contained and channeled into socially valuable roles. And in psychology, there has been some acknowledgement of this overlap of psychosis and spirituality with terms like cosmic consciousness. Buck was a Canadian psychiatrist, wrote around the turn of the last century, like 1900 or 1901, I think is his copyright. But the Groff, Stan and Christina Groff, talked about spiritual emergencies. We have terms like creative illness. Uh, Lang used the term metanoic voyages. John Perry used the term visionary states. And later on, I introduced a term into the literature of mystical experiences with psychotic features. But as I mentioned, once I hit graduate school, not only was psychosis a clearly negative attribute, but the whole domain of spirituality was treated that way pretty openly by mental health professionals back in the 70s when I was in graduate school. So Sigmund Freud describes religion as a system of wishful illusions together with a disavowal of reality such as we find nowhere else but in a state of blissful hallucinatory confusion. And Albert Ellis, who is given credit for being one of the fathers of the cognitive part of cognitive behavioral therapy with his rational emotive therapy. And he was on a, quite an anti-religious uh, campaign, wrote books against, uh, against religion. Uh, and this is a quote of his from an uh, interview. This, then this interview was like 2002, so it, was, it wasn't back in the 70s. He held on to this view throughout his life. Spirit and soul is horseshit of the worst sort. Obviously, there are no fairies, no Santa Clauses, no spirits. What there is is human goals and purposes, but a lot of transpersonalists are utter screwballs. And B.F. Skinner. Now, he totally ignored religion in his academic work, but he did write a novel called Walden II, and clearly the protagonist in that is expressing his kind of worldview and where he describes religion as an explanatory fiction of a miracle working mind. And he described prayer as superstitious behavior perpetuated by an intermittent reinforcement schedule, which means that every once in a while, whatever you're praying for will happen by random chance alone. But that can still reinforce the prayer behavior, even though it's unrelated. And he has animal research to show that just dropping in pellets into like a pigeon's cage randomly, the pigeon, if they're hungry, they start to try to figure out, why am I getting this pillow? Oh, maybe it's because I'm turning around and turning around and turning around. So they start doing that, thinking that's going to bring the pellets. That's his comparison to prayer. Just an absolutely irrational behavior. Okay. So, that was my graduate school days. Then I did my internship out here in California. And uh, came out here in 1976 to do an internship at Camarillo State Hospital, south of 
Santa Barbara. Now, I think it's Port Wanimi Community College or something. It's not a hospital anymore. They shut it down. But while I was in California, I got exposed to the first time to this brand of psychology. I'd been very familiar with humanistic psychology. I had not really heard of transpersonal psychology. And one of the core assumptions of the field of transpersonal psychology is that individuals are essentially spiritual beings rather than simply a self or psychological ego. And the actual association for transpersonal psychology was founded in 1971. And one of the founders is a figure whose work is still out there in the world and very influential, Abraham Maslow. And he actually became the president of the American Psychological Association. And very unfortunately, he had a really major heart attack two months into being elected president of ATP, uh, of APA, which meant that he never was able, he was really bedridden uh, at that point, he never was able to move transpersonal psychology ahead in the field of psychology. But nevertheless, he did found this field, one of the founders. Um, and let's see if I can... T- the actual term transpersonal was coined by William James back in a lecture he gave at Harvard in, I think it was like 1906 or seven. And I'm just going to point to it here. I'm not going to try to elaborate it, but here you can see the word transpersonal as when my object is also your object, and then he goes on to elaborate. It's not exactly how we use the term, but it captures some of it. And I just like to know, people to know that it really harkens back to the person who is often called the father of American psychology, this branch of psychology. Okay, now it had critics. It had critics like Albert Ellis and... Interestingly, Rollo May, who was one of the founders of humanistic psychology, and they claimed that transpersonal psychology was a religion. And that in the, it was just, all it was was the integration of religious practices, including meditation, yoga, shamanic techniques, and psychedelics into therapy. That's all it was. And this is one of those, you know, there are certain incidents in history where things could go one way or another, and there was a vote taken at the American Psychological Association about whether to bring transpersonal psychology in as one of the subdisciplines of psychology. And with these criticisms from these two prominent figures, people voted, the membership of APA voted it down. Um, interestingly, <clears throat> I later consulted with a group of psychologists in England and the who are going through the same thing with the British Psychological Society, which is their APA, their American Psychological Association, and they were successful. So there is a British Psychological Society division of transpersonal psychology, but not for the American Psychological Association. Now, with regard to this criticism, it's just kind of paradoxical because that's exactly what transpersonal psychology was trying to avoid. Transpersonal psychology was trying to add a scientific and pragmatic perspective, emphasizing a reflective study of transcendent experiences and their practical applications to healing. And Stan Krippner, still a Bay Area celebrity in this field, 
Transpersonal psychology is precisely that branch of psychology which maintains that reports of transpersonal experiences and behaviors can be studied scientifically. And that, that's the position I'm taking here. Okay, so some of you will recognize Stan and Christina Groff. So when I came out here, uh, I got exposed for the first time um, to their terminology. And they described this phenomenon they called a spiritual emergency. For example, Joseph Campbell had an article in that book where he says, to my amazement, and he's, you know, a, a, many of you know him, but for anybody who don't, he is certainly one of the, was, is still, no, he's not alive now, but anyway, he certainly is one of the renowned experts in the whole Library of World Mythology. And this he was dragged, kind of kicking and screaming, to an Esalen seminar by Michael Murphy and John Perry and other people because they were going to talk about psychotic experiences. And he kept saying, I'm a mythologist. I don't know anything about what you're talking about. At the end of the seminar at Esalen, he said, to my amazement, the imagery of schizophrenic fantasy perfectly matches that of the mythological hero's journey. So this was helping give me some alternative perspectives on my own experience because I was at this point, you know, uh, a little ambivalent about it. Although I was in Jungian analysis for five years, so I had a place where I could share a lot of that experience. But I really did not share it outside of that. But once I saw that perspective of. Uh, the mythic dimension of it, I started to explore that in other people that I was working with, and I wrote an article that really took Joseph Campbell's point and elaborated it into a detailed analysis showing these kinds of parallels between the world's mythology and psychotic experiences. So that was called the myths and mental illness. And at that time, then, I started to think about, well, how can we distinguish an episode of cosmic consciousness or spiritual emergency from an episode of bipolar or schizophrenia or something like that. But I wrote an article right after Myths of Mental Illness, I think in the next issue, that I called The Diagnosis of Mystical Experiences with Psychotic Features. And it was an attempt on my part to fit, look at how can we make these kinds of uh, differential diagnoses. And there is a little bit of a literature, not much research, but I'll talk about what there was. Anyway, um, I said, okay, I moved to California in Camarillo and then was on the faculty at UCLA for six years and moved up to the Bay Area in 86, right around when these two articles were published. And I got a call from Francis Liu. And he said he wanted to talk to me. He thought we had a lot of things in common, interests in common. And we, at that point, started to work together. Uh, we were both on the board of the Spiritual Emergency Network. Uh, I helped them. They had uh, Ram Dass did a fundraiser for Spiritual Emergency Network, which raised enough money to fund its existence, Sends existence. They rented offices. They had offices later at CIS, but they also had it at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. They had a, a hotline and so on. 
So we were very involved with that and putting on conferences uh, on spiritual emergencies. But at a certain point, we realized we were preaching to the choir, that all these people that would come to these kinds of conferences were people who were pretty predisposed to believe that there are these kinds of presentations where people can look like they're in a psychotic episode, but in fact, they're in the middle of a spiritual kind of crisis. So Francis Liu and I, at one of these board meetings with Stan and Christina Groff there, just started to speculate on how could we get this out into the mainstream. And I can't remember between Francis and I who came up with this idea or how it exactly evolved. But the idea was, let's get a, see if we can get a category into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that would really anchor it and acknowledge the existence of this phenomenon. So we then spent the next about three and a half years on this project. And when you're doing a project you know, like that, you're wondering if this is just whistling in the wind. You know, Is this really the right use of one's time for several years, et cetera, et cetera. But we did end up publishing this article, uh, proposing the category in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, which is considered one of the five leading journals in psychiatry in terms of citations and things like that. And the editor, I can't remember his name, Francis would know it, actually, when they accepted this article, it was in a publication cycle. He yanked it from the cycle and made sure it got published right away because he knew that the DSM-4 task force was having a meeting coming up that they were calling their last meeting. It didn't turn out to be their last meeting, but they said, this is our last meeting. We're going to make all our final decisions. So he knew that if they published it later, it wouldn't have any impact. So it was published like weeks before the final meeting of the DSM-4 task force. And Francis made sure that they all, everyone on the committee had a copy, and he got some letters of support from two divisions within the American Psychiatric Association, one on psychiatrists interested in religion, I think it was called in those days, and a, a cultural sensitivity group. Both wrote letters advocating for this diagnosis to be added. So the proposal, I think, one of the things that really gave it a lot of uh, impact was in that Journal of Nervous Mental Disease article, we did summarize the empirical research that showed the beneficial role that religion plays. Nobody talked about spirituality in those days, by the way. Preventing mental and physical illnesses, improving how people cope with mental and physical illness, and facilitating recovery from mental and physical illness. And if you look at the number of publications that have been coming out on religion and spirituality, um, it has been escalating. So it was already, and these are in uh, Medline, PubMed. So it was already starting to get some attention within the field. And then I think we were beginning to, healthcare was beginning to recognize that uh, the American population, unlike many European countries, is a very religious population. 89% of adult Americans report that they pray to God. 95 to 99% claim they believe in God or a higher power. 69% believe God guides them in making decisions. And 69% are affiliated with religious institutions. So that was all part of our argument. And it was accepted. And the DSM-4, actually, that's the DSM-4 text revision. And then it was retained in the DSM-5. 
in exactly the same language, even though we wrote a chapter and made a proposal for some modifications to the language, but that was ignored. Anyway, so this is how it still reads. This category can be used when the focus of clinical attention is a religious or spiritual problem. Examples include distressing experiences that involve loss or questioning of faith, problems associated with conversion to a new faith, or questioning of other spiritual values that may not necessarily be related to an organized church or religious institution. So subsequently, I did some other research, like uh, I did a content analysis of all PEB, all Medline articles that dealt with religious and spiritual cases from 1980 to 1996 to help develop a kind of typology. In other words, when we're talking about religious and spiritual problems, what are the ones that show up in the literature and presumably in clinical practice? So. There's a variety of visionary spiritual experiences that are very close to the transpersonal dimension, mystical experience, near-death experience, psychic experience, and alien abduction experiences. And then there are spiritual practice-related ones. I'll show you some examples of that. And possession. Those are the ones that came up in these literature searches. Um, And I'm actually not going to talk a lot about that, but I want to talk about this one because it does apply in this context here of complementary and alternative medicine. And Mariana Kaplan is a yoga teacher here in the Bay Area. She has, she's an MFT uh, licensed as a therapist. She also has a doctorate and seven or eight books. And this is an observation of hers that I think is very apt, where spiritual masters have been warning their disciples for thousands of years about the dangers of playing with mystical states The contemporary spiritual scene is like a candy store where any casual spiritual tourist can sample the goodies that promise a variety of mystical highs. And, you know, it used to be if you wanted to learn yoga, you had to find a yoga teacher and get their willingness, you know, know, ask them to teach you. And there's lots of stories about how hard it is to get a spiritual teacher. You have to, you know, sit for days in front of their house or something like that. But now, well, now you can go to YouTube. When she was writing, it would probably more like buy a DVD. But anyway, the point is that people can do extreme versions of meditation, yoga, qigong, and so on, and, and on their own, no supervision, no teacher, and can get into trouble. And there's well-known syndromes. Kundalini is a well-known syndrome of people who uh, engage in yogic practices, maybe to... Uh, overdo it a bit and meditation has its fallout in that area and every mindfulness center has a protocol now for deal I consulted with Spirit Rock about theirs of people who might flip out in the middle of a meditation retreat and Jack Cornfield has discussed this and has a case study of somebody he worked with in that situation um, and this is an article on culture uh, bound psychiatric disorders associated with Qigong practice in China, but of course now we're seeing it in the U.S. as well. Okay, now another topic I've written about is how can we make this distinction? And so there are a lot of clues. One of the most important ones is prognostic signs. Is this the person's first episode? Did it come on suddenly rather than a slow, insidious onset? Uh, what is their attitude toward it? Is it an attitude of curiosity? What's going on here? Versus, uh, you know, a more 
persecutory, paranoid reaction, not wanting to share it, people are after me, and so on. Those are all signs that can help one make a differential diagnosis. Okay. Um, and I just want to mention that another factor that's been driving this area of spirituality, which uh, I think was first you know, openly discussed in the transpersonal field, I think another driver that has increased its acceptance throughout the healthcare system is the fact that the Joint Commission on Healthcare, uh, Joint Care on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, Joint Commission as they now go by, mandates that there be a spiritual assessment in every patient's chart. So this has become now a standard of care that. Every nurse, every psychologist, every social worker, they, they make it clear. They're not limiting it to pastoral staff. They think all healthcare staff should be able to work with a client's religious and spiritual uh, issues. So my current work um, with a group of colleagues like Cassie Veaton and some others um, has been to try to pin down well, if it's a standard of care, what are the specific competencies that psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists, all healthcare professionals should have in order to work effectively and culturally sensitively with patients? So uh, I, we went through a nine-year process of documenting core religious and spiritual competencies, starting with uh, extensive lit review, a focus group, uh, doing po uh, having surveys filled out at APA conferences, and then that was amongst people who had some interest in religion and spirituality and kind of were some knowledge base. And then we did a survey of psychologists who had no particular interest in religion and spirituality to see what they thought of these competencies published it in a couple of articles um, in APA journals, peer-reviewed journals, written one book on this. I'm not an author on this book, but we all did some collaboration on it, and it covers what we did in the articles, but with more clinical examples. So, you know, just as an example of what's in a competency, psychologists assess, that's this one here, because this is, I think, the gateway skill, Psychologists assess spiritual and religious background, heritage, experience, practices, attitudes, and beliefs in a as a standard part of understanding a client's history. So a spiritual assessment. So we list others that I don't have the time to describe today. Those articles are available. In some presentations, I would now hand out this interview, this assessment interview, or in briefer presentations, I would have people pair up and ask each other so, you know, a simple question that can be used in a clinical context. Do you have any beliefs or practices that help you cope with difficulties or stress? And people usually who have a religious or spiritual uh, orientation, that's where they would go. And people who are more secular or um, atheist or agnostic could go where they take that question where they would go. Okay. So I've covered that topic of spirituality. Now I want to do something that I think is you'll enjoy, which is, because it has a lot of nice, colorful slides, which is to talk about the role that transpersonal psychology has played in pioneering uh, complementary and alternative medicine. 
um, and, and kind of liberating psychology from its reliance on Greco-Judeo-Christian myths. So if you look, I mean, the whole world of mythology is right in our name. Psychiatry, psychology all come from Psyche. And of course, Psyche was a Greek nymph who journeyed into the underworld and has come to personify the soul for the last couple of thousand years and got integrated into psychology. And of course, we have Pan. We adopted that for our term panic. We have panic disorder, that term. And Ananki uh, is, appears in our term anxiety. And of course, the Maenads are still kind of dancing, at least etymologically, uh, with mania. So uh, I think the Jungians expressed it aptly here, James Hillman. Mythology is a psychology of antiquity, and psychology is a mythology of modernity. So when we look at myth, Joseph Campbell, I think, made a, another good metaphor here, and he compared myth to what we call the innate releasing mechanisms in biology. And he says, an exactly comparable biological function is served in our own species by a mythology, which is no less indispensable uh, biological organ and no less a nature product. It's like the nest of a bird. A mythology is fashioned of materials drawn from the local environment according to an architecture. I lost the last word there. Or as Houston Smith says this, it carries, uh, it orchestrates the culture and consciousness of entire civilizations. It carries the codings of existence. Now, we want to have, I think at this point in time, a mythology that we can share around the world. Um, mythology's always been burdened and by the fact that part of what's function has been to identify who's the in-group and who's the out-group. Basically, who can be our enemy? Who can we kill? That is one of the things that mythology has frequently addressed. Bible. There is no God on all the earth but in Israel. Not very cultural, sensitive kind of statement. And Sam Keen and Joseph Campbell put it this way. One of the most neglected aspects of mythology is that myths always tell us who we may kill and how we may, may kill them without guilt. Okay. So Buckminster Fuller kind of argued that a new myth should be something along the lines of, you know, that we live in the spaceship Earth. We're all in the same boat together. But the point I really wanted to make here was that our field of psychology historically has not taken advantage of the world's library of myth. Jungians, for example, James Hillman here is representative, said, I am orthodox, holding for the old, the traditional, the ones of our own culture, Greek, Roman, Celtic, and Nordic myths, the Bible, legends and folktales, the main body of biblical and classical tales directs fantasy into organized deeply life-giving psychological patterns. So we should all ignore Hahnemann and focus on Hermes. That's our culture. I'm looking to see people of many cultures here, but I'm saying it the way he was viewing it at that time. Jung. And it is painful to look at somebody like, you know, somebody who I idolize and see 
his language here even, you cannot be a good Christian. Of course, we all want to be good Christians, don't we? Um, either in your faith or in your morality, in your intellectual makeup, and practice. You cannot be a good Christian and practice genuine yoga at the same time. The trouble is that Western man, I think more women practice yoga than men, but Western man cannot get rid of his history as easily as his short-legged memory can. History, one might say, is written in blood. I would not advise anyone to touch yoga. So we have inherited some of this perspective in our psychology too. So, you know, if, if as Jerome Bruner said, myths provide a library of scripts against which the individual may judge the internal drama of his or her multiple realities, why should we be limited to Greek myths? And transpersonal psychology has paid appropriate uh, attention, I think, to Western myths, Gene Bolin, you know, if you open up these chapters, you'll see all the Greek gods and the gods in every man and all the Greek goddesses in uh, goddesses in every woman. But psychology has not limited itself in that way. And I think psychology is really engaged much more in what Joseph Campbell says here, which is a kind of comparison of mytho mythologies. So Nietzsche called this the age of comparisons. And this is Campbell. I found that the way to become really familiar with these lines is by a comparative method, not remaining fixed in one mythological tradition, our own, for example, but to make a comparison back and forth, ancient, medieval, and modern, the great civilizations of India, China, Japan, and the Muslim world, the non-literate societies. These are all clues to human functioning. And even Jung did say all psychologists should receive education in mythology to provide them with a comparative anatomy of the psyche. And he did later in life certainly engage with a lot of Asian... He wrote uh, the, uh, an introduction to the I Ching also, and so on. But anyway. But the transpersonal... This is a picture of uh, Mary Fukuyama, recognized as one of the pioneers of multicultural approaches to counseling. And uh, I, I read something of hers that I contacted and we had some exchanges and ultimately did a workshop together and some other things. And then later on in her book called Integrating Spirituality into Multicultural Counseling, she said, there is no transpersonal psychology without the multicultural and the spiritual perspectives. So, so in one example of that, is the role, I think, that transpersonal psychology played in starting to psychology looking outside its cultural and geographic boundaries. So here you see uh, Ram Dass, trained as a psychologist in the psychology department at Harvard. Uh, but here he is at the foot of his guru. And also later on, after he came back to the States, uh, Herbert Benson at Harvard had started to do some research on meditation um, and showing its benefits for some medical conditions like high blood pressure and so on. But the very first article that talked about the mental health benefits of meditation was uh, Ram Dass in an article well, that was published in the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology based on a series of lectures that he gave at the Menninger Foundation. So um, I got exposed to this. I got to uh, spend some time with Ram Dass 
shortly after he came back, like in 1971, and changed my life, started to do th things like chanting I had never done before, meditating, and so on. Um, and ultimately, I've been able to integrate that into my career. My doctoral dissertation was a holistic health program for people with schizophrenia at Camarillo State Hospital. That included meditation. And by the way, nobody called it mindfulness in those days. But later, that's the term we would use now. Uh, for good reasons, I'll mention. And then <clears throat> later, I came in to the Bay Area and was a psychologist at the San Francisco VA Medical Center. And there, I uh, started groups for the patients that I was working with who had substance abuse problems that were called Finding Your Higher Power. And I certainly had some people, other psychologists, rolling their eyes that I would lead a group like that. I actually brought in the uh, chaplain, the hospital chaplain, uh, to co-lead these groups with me. Uh, and I also led groups um, that included walking and sitting meditation with HIV, AIDS, and chronic, and chronic illness groups. That included some Tai Chi and visualizations and other things. And then most recently, I published an article on Aikido, which is the my personal... I do take, I've been doing Tai Chi for about 10, 12 years, but Aikido for 28 years, and wrote up an article based on some of my work with veterans using Aikido, because it really works well, well with veterans, because they really take to a martial art approach to mindfulness more than a sitting on a cushion approach to mindfulness. So it has some real benefits with that populations. And um, so that's the connection I wanted to make between how transpersonal psychology played a seminal role in bringing mindfulness meditation into the mainstream. So the second one I want to talk about are these altered states of consciousness. And one criticism, and Bruce Scotton was on the faculty here as a I think you call them teaching faculty. Um, and he was one of the editors and authors in a book on transpersonal approaches to psychiatry. And I, add, I got him to add psych and psychology to it at the time. Um, but anyway, one of his criticisms was that many schools of psychology adhere to an unnecessarily restricted view of the psyche and refuse to work therapeutically with spiritual experience and experiences of non-ordinary reality. So here, I want to bring up transpersonal psychology's role in bringing this more into the mainstream. And some of you may recognize this, port this picture of uh, Rick Doblin. Now he's Dr. Rick Doblin. I knew him in the early 80s when he walked around Association for Transpersonal Psychology conferences held at Asilomar. And we're having another conference this, I think it's April, at Asilomar. But I remember him walking around in Birkenstocks and T-shirt and organizing panels on MDMA. Um, and it was another preaching to the choir kind of situation. And I think he really was so committed to this that he got that. And he realized that MDMA was not going to move out of the transpersonal world unless somebody was able to take some really radical move to move the field. Well, some of you may know what he did. He went to Harvard, got a PhD in governmental policy at the JFK School of Government there, uh, with a specialization or a focus on drug policy. 
Uh, during that time, he worked with the leading drug policy experts in the world. Uh, gave him credibility when he went to the FDA. He would bring together some of the leading scientists, neuroscientists at the time, and he had the governmental policy, PhD, and he had entree to start to work again with the FDA to overturn their bans. But it did start from ATP, Transpersonal Psychology Conferences and Discussions, and Charlie Grobe was there, and Gary Bravo, and some of the people doing the pivotal research in this area today still. And transpersonal psychology was still keeping this field. It was totally dormant, as you all know, from late 60s up until Rick Straussman got permission to use do some MDMA, MDA studies. Or, yeah, I think it was, or was it DMT? Anyway, uh, but... Um, for example, the journal Transpersonal Psychology published articles like this, I'm the author on his, uh, looking at what kind of research is still being done on psychoactive substances. Because at that point, Switzerland had legalized a psychiatric prescription of psychedelic drugs. So there were starting to be some research being done there. Uh, some people, like Leuner, were still able to use psychedelic drugs in Germany uh, with concentration camp survivors. Um, and there were still like these weird branches of anthropology like archaeopsychopharmacology that were tracing out ancient drug use amongst indigenous peoples in South America and Africa. So my point was to still get out in the field, hey, this isn't a lost cause, these are still important topics, even though we can't do research on it. So transpersonal psychology still continued to have articles and presentations on it. I don't think you'll find that anywhere else in psychology. And then in terms of this spreading it in to the larger population, this is a picture taken in Moscow of a workshop that Stan and Christina Groff gave on their holotropic breathwork, which was one of their ways of getting altered states of consciousness, again, more out into the mainstream, holotropic breathwork. You do experience altered states of consciousness through hypotoxia. I think it's, a, you know, it's this hyperventilation kind of breathing process, but it definitely induces an altered state. So getting that out, legitimating that, and as I mentioned, I was doing some of that in my writing. Okay, so, but as we all know, I, I'm making this sound like a hero's journey, you know, of, you know, conquest and uh, victory and so on. Yet every hero's journey has its battles and conflicts and so on. So I want to share a couple of, of those that have occurred in my uh, watch here. Um, and that was, I was giving workshops on these topics, and I had spent years getting approval to offer continuing education credits for these kinds of workshops. Um, and in 2001, I organized a conference. I was president of AT, new president of ATP in those days, and I uh, gave this workshop or, or conference on anomalous experiences. Some of you may know that was actually a book published by the American Psychological Association, which included many altered states of consciousness, mystical experiences, psychic experiences, shamanic experiences, psychedelic drug experiences, and so on. Well, lo and behold, APA heard about this and yanked my approval as a CE provider. That was 2001. We went through a protracted hearing process, an appeal process, 
and I want it back. 2014, I sponsored a workshop at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on Qigong. APA, again, got a hold of me, yanked my approval for this workshop on um, Qigong. And what they argued is that even though an instructor, the instructor for this workshop, some of you may have heard of, was Ming Tong Gu. He has been considered one of the leading Qigong teachers. He has some published articles. Um, he spent 10 years in China studying at their famous Medicine List Hospital. Um, he had, by that time, over 10 years of hands-on clinical experience. Um, and uh, had absolutely no religious training whatsoever in his life. They argued that he was an, the instructor with religious training. Uh, he was paired with a marriage and family therapist, but it did not rise to the level that was deemed by the committee to support that the standard was met, that that was an appropriate topic. Well, Anybody who does any Googling about the topic of Qigong will quickly come to the fact that the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Medicine considers it a mind-body practice. It's not considered a religious practice. In China, it is considered to be part of their medical system. They do not consider it a religious or spiritual practice. The education to become a Qigong practitioner doesn't include anything of that ilk at all. Again, about a year and a half process, hiring lawyers, consultants, going through a appeals hearing, and so on. The decision of the committee. Now, the committee, the, the protocol is they have to bring in three outside people who are not members of the continuing education committee. Those people get to hear my argument and get to hear their argument about is Qigong a religious practice or is it a healthcare practice that has profound uh, value for using in clinical settings. It's taught to a lot of senior citizens and has a lot of health benefits that are well documented by this time. And they basically agreed with that. They basically said they... Um, the training entails application of healthcare practice widely used this is their decision, in Eastern medicine and throughout China. As the field of psychology expands to incorporate complementary and alternative medicine practices, master trainers for these practices may be appropriate trainers for psychology CE. And so they basically said, no, he deserves to get his approval back for the longest period, which is five years. So I won that appeal. But I'm just pointing out that this is what one goes through, and there's one final example, and this is 2016, I received this letter from the Board of Registered Nursing, July 15th, 2016. And, hmm, cut off a little bit of this, but what it says here is that a mindfulness-based stress reduction course. Now, if you do a search for this, it's the most researched approach to mindfulness. Does not meet the regulatory requirements. And they also yanked my approval. And again, we went through that same 
appeals process. And I now have gotten my BRN approval back. And I actually didn't mention one that's a little more understandable incident, which was getting my approval, uh, getting investigated when I was a psychologist at the VA by the inspector general for teaching meditation. I was informed I was going to be investigated and by the psych- chief of psychology. And I, I said, well, do you know who that is and how I can contact them? And I got the address. And in those days, no links and all that. I mailed him three articles by John Kabat-Zinn. But he was, the plan was to come out and do this investigation. I got back a message through my chief. Oh, we decided not to do the investigation because of those articles by John Kabat-Zinn. So I just want to point out that those are the kinds of things that come up. So Fadiman, some of you may know him from his recent research on microdosing, but what he said is, we changed the world, we just didn't get credit for it. So I want to give three examples of that, and then we can have a few questions. So one example is... Many of you know the hospice, the Zen hospice here. Well, I was involved with the Japanese Transpersonal Psychology Network. And there was a member who was studying in the United States who I got to know. And when he went back to Japan, he got involved with a project to open up the, the first Buddhist, uh, or Zen, Buddhist Zen, um, hospices in Japan, the Christian groups had opened up something like 18 hospices in Japan. <coughs> Buddhist monks played no role in dying. They never came and visited anybody who was dying. They never played any role in helping a family grieve. Their only role vis-a-vis a dying person was to come, not meet anybody, and conduct a ceremony for the spirit of the deceased, and then leave. And they actually charged, uh, what I understand was a pretty penny for doing that. But membership at all the Zen temples in Japan is in a serious decline. So they got interested in opening up some hospices. So they actually had my wife and I, my wife is a hospice social worker, come over there and teach them some of these transpersonal, spiritual, Zen hospice-like approaches to uh, working with the dying and the grieved. So we did that at a Zen temple in Tokyo. And then a second instance of that was a colleague of mine named uh, Stu Savatsky, whose whole work has been on yoga, and a particularly ecstatic form of yoga. Having yoga become accepted here in the United States has enabled people in India to start bringing it back to India. Psychology in India totally rejected any of their traditional indigenous forms of spiritual practice, meditation or yo- and yoga. And here, we actually had a conference, 2004, in India, and we're bringing back these practices, and we're well-received for, wow, it's sort of legitimating some of their own practices. And another example of that was in Kyrgyzstan, where... Uh, a group at the Aging, Aging, I believe is how it's pronounced, Research Center in Kyrgyzstan uh, got together, spent two years on their own, and produced a book called 
Transpersonal Psychology in Central Asia, Searching Between Spirituality and Science. And they concluded that the theories and clinical approaches of transpersonal psychology allow us to present our cultural heritage scientifically and explain the connections between national cultural heritage, epic poetry, and cases of healing to document and preserve this unique form of spirituality. And then they got funding. They were looking for somebody to teach them about transpersonal psychology. They had uh, accessed a number of books that they were able to import, but they wanted somebody to come over and arrange through the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. They got in contact with me. They came over there and arranged for me to come back and teach a week-long workshop there. And um, um, this is... with What they did is they brought together indigenous healers. He is a uh, specialist in a kind of healing where they use a whip and to dislodge evil spirits. So he was doing that with me with the whip coming down, you know, like shh, you could feel it, you know, going right by your ear. Anyway, uh, but it was a, a chance to have real dialogue between these mental health professionals, staff, psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, and these indigenous healers using this kind of transpersonal frame. And also, I won't, I'll just mention this, but a colleague of mine also did this in South Africa, where he argued that transpersonal psychology gives us a vocabulary where we can work with traditional healers. And he had his students in South Africa working with traditional healers using this kind of transpersonal orientation. So um, I'm going to leave it at there. Um, if you download the uh, slide show, uh, you will have some other slides. Uh, and I just will briefly just say I, what I would have ideally liked to have done was present a case where I talk about how I worked with a trans with an artist, a manic, an, an artist who had a diagnosis of manic depression, how we were able to use some of his delusions, really, uh, as part of his art, because that's what he was invested in, was his artwork, and the role that that could play in really stimulating the art world. The art world, surrealists in particular, had been very enthralled with the art of, it's called in their genre, in books they published, the art of the mentally ill. And it actually, the largest exhibit of the art of the mentally ill was held in Nazi Germany in 1937. This is the uh, poster from it. Kunst, meaning... Out, uh, out, uh, degenerate art. And there's a picture, it was organized by Garibalds. Hitler attended it. And there they are. There's Garibalds. And I think that's Hitler on the right of it. And their whole point was look at this art. On the left, you have, like, I think that's clay. And on the right, a patient. I. I actually did this as slides, and then when I digitized them, I lost track of which is the clay and which is the patient. But here's a Duchamp statue and a patient's statue. And here's an example of an art by Dubuffet, who was one of the surrealists who really talked about the power of the art of the mentally ill. And we now do have this whole genre called outsider art. So I think the transpersonal view of the rawness of the transpersonal and how it can contribute to creativity is how I want to...
to end with a case, but at least I gave you the flavor of that. So we do have 12 minutes left. We can have some questions. Um, well, I think like good parents, they had zero interest in what I was pursuing, but they really did support me. They could see that I was, I guess, from looking like somebody who was pretty a lost soul, uh, to finding something I was really pretty passionate about. So they would definitely acknowledge that side of me, and I give them a lot of credit for that. Well, in my early work, it was focused on this area of how do we distinguish. But of course, interestingly, as my work in that area got published, patients in the consumer movement picked it up and said, oh, that's me too. So now um, I actually have been doing much more of my work with the consumer population who really want to re-own those experiences and say, no, there was something valid about my journey to heaven. I saw things and learned things that really have, are important to me. And my argument in these kinds of settings is, yeah, we should be free to encourage them to talk about these experiences. I've written several case studies about the exact value. I showed you the one about the artist, but you know, here I am talking about... Uh, in his case, it was alien abductions. I wasn't trying to, uh, you know, get him to be more reality-oriented or anything like that. But I think we can do both. We can acknowledge the spiritual dimension of the experience, and you know, where are you going to, you know, how are you going to deal with your, uh, you know, need for a place to live at night, or you know, the mundane things that we all have to do deal with as well. So I, I think that's still an important issue, distinguishing uh, somebody who's having a real classic kind of spiritual emergency from somebody who's having a, this episode of onset of schizophrenia. I think that is an issue. But I think what we want to see, even what I've been even more focused on now, is the fact that anybody can have spiritual experiences, including people with diagnosable kind of mental disorders. Okay. Um, I forgot to repeat the other questions, but this time the question was kind of what do we, you know, there have been such dramatic changes. Just it is inspiring, you know, to see in one's own career such massive changes in a field like healthcare. So I'm actually pretty optimistic. I think we've got a lot of challenges with healthcare, but I really do see healthcare as becoming very pragmatic, and these things work. The complementing alternative medicine modalities like Qigong. I mean, I can sit and talk with a patient in my office, you know, for my designated hour and have very minimal impact on their lives. If I can get them involved in a Tai Chi class, and if I can, which I was doing with a lot of my patients, both at the VA and in my private practice, if they look depressed and low energy, I would say, what do you say we go for a walk while we talk? You know, just starting to change the whole field so that we're more in tune with the mind, body, spirit dimension uh, and I'm actually, I am optimistic based on the changes that I've seen in my life. Really? I think this would be a great subject for some joint brainstorming and visioning because I don't really feel like I have uh, a particular insight in this area. But I do want to say one thing, and I do think 
it's just something we can't ignore, which is that we need more social justice. We do know that people in poverty have way more mental health and physical problems. And I would think that part of our attention has to be on that, to be involved in sort of a socially engaged form of spirituality, not just a spirituality that's sitting on a cushion, but a spirituality that is willing to protest inequities in our society and so on. Because I don't think we're going to have a really good handle on optimal health care until we address those kinds of issues as well. I'm trying to think. Uh, When I had to defend Qigong, it was not a problem to put Qigong into the PubMed uh, database search term as a search term and get dozens of articles. Uh, uh, That really, some of our review articles, there's been very compelling research on the benefits of Qigong for things like balance, coordination. People have neuropathy and have less feeling on the bottoms of their feet. If they do uh, Qigong, very good uh, research showing they have fewer falls, fewer pelvic fractures, very concrete things like that. But what about their Well, I... I, I I do think psychology cannot be limited to just psychology, that we do have to have the mind and body and spirit as a kind of our overview. So I I wouldn't want to view view myself as limiting it to, quote, psychology, therapy. I would want to take into these other dimensions. It depends on what you're looking for. I mean, I have my little clinical vignettes that everybody has about the person I worked with at the San Francisco VA who had PTSD, and uh, he, he was having real trouble because anytime his wife touched him, he would have just a startle response, and you know, it was a, a real uh, problem in their relationship. So I could talk to them. I could do couples therapy and so on. But what I ended up doing with him, because other people in this group had this issue too, it was a PTSD group, I started doing very simple Aikido techniques. And one of the most basic Aikido techniques is you put your hand out. This is very beginning technique. Somebody grabs your hand, and you let them grab. You really just feel into their grab. You, let, you practice breathing, so if your heart starts to race or something, you, you know, you're being coached on how to bring that arousal down and so on. So you can, I, I was able to decondition that startle response in several of the veterans that I worked with. Okay. Those are, there's, but there's compelling research on Qigong and Tai Chi even more than Aikido right now. Okay, this is, this is my stance on that kind of an issue. He's asked, how, you know, do you, do you need to have, you know, what, what preparation do you, would one need to be able to make use of these kinds of techniques? Is that one place you're going with it? Use as well as promote it and okay. get it into it. So I, I really think it depends on the setting. So, for example, I would not teach an Aikido class at a dojo. There are many people who are much higher ranked than I am. But when I'm with my, say, a workshop, at Esalen, when I taught with my students, they know a lot less Aikido than I do. They know a lot less Qigong than I do. When I work with patients, I make that assumption too. And so I feel empowered to just go ahead and say, well, stand up. Let's, let's, you, you say you feel unsteady on the ground. Let's see if we can find a way for you to stand where you feel really connected to the earth. 
I can do something like that with a student. I would never say I teach Qigong. But it, do you have any practices that you do personally? Meditation. Ayurvedic? Meditation. Okay. So I would feel totally comfortable in a clinical situation. I mean, right now, it is a different era. I'll take this back. Because when I was teaching it, there were no credentials. Now, if you want to say, oh, I'm doing MBSR, you really should have... There's the training in MBSR and then teacher training. So I would say at this point, if you want to get serious about it, you probably do need the credential. When I was teaching it, I, I think that wasn't necessary. And I still would think I'd feel comfortable sharing it in a lot of situations. But there might be some I wouldn't. If I was teaching in a more public setting, like a, even in a setting like this, well, I've done that. I'm, even, when I've given longer talks, like a workshop, I will say, okay, we've been talking for about an hour. Let's, everybody stand up. Let's do a little stretching, and I'll lead you in some qigong. And, you know, I, I wouldn't have any problem with doing those kinds of things. I think once you feel you've learned it, it should be shared. You could be a teacher for some people. So I think we're now at that point where uh, we should end and anybody who needs to leave can leave and I'm happy to stick around for a little bit and chat with anybody who has a question they didn't get answered or wants to share something with me. So thank you for your attention and thank you for... You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.